Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Game Points Podcast, Mock Draft Edition. This is your host, Brendan McGuire. In this episode, I will be going through the first round, working through each pick, talking about team needs, free agency acquisitions, schemes, and of course, the draft prospects. We've got a certain QB falling, a bunch of picks I like, a bunch of picks I don't like, and I'll tell you why. Let's start with number one. This one's easy. I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years we redraft someone else here. Maybe one of the big five quarterbacks, maybe a non-first round quarterback, maybe a Hall of Fame position player. Draft picks are never sure things. It's always about mitigating risk or finding traits to build from. But Trevor Lawrence out of Clemson is as close to a sure thing as I've seen in a long time with a variety of solid traits that translate to the next level. Of the guys available, he's not the most accurate doesn't have the biggest arm, not the toughest or necessarily fastest, but he is certainly the most complete. There are no obvious weak points in his game or character. Quarterbacks taken in the top five of drafts are not only a shaky proposition, but have a borderline terrible track record. This may speak to scouts' tendency to become enamored with prospects, a testament to the risks of draft picks, or an indication that even great prospects cannot overcome the deficiencies of a team picking in the top five. Lawrence is going to be the first guy off the board. We shall see if he's capable of carrying a franchise in desperate need of hope. Will he be the savior of the NFL? No, probably not. But he has the best odds of any guy in this draft to do so. Moving on to number two, the pick is Zach Wilson out of BYU. If I believe anything, it's the Jets' ability to mess things up. And that continues with the selection of Zach Wilson. Wilson had a fantastic 2020 season, throwing 3,600 yards, 33 touchdowns, and just three interceptions to go along with a 73% completion percentage. But could he be a one-year wonder? It is a little concerning that his only good season came during a year in which the level of play was lessened due to opt-outs and reduced team activities. He wasn't exactly playing NFL talent in the independent conference either. I mean, he played one ranked team and lost against the Coastal Carolina Chanteliers, in which he scored 12 points. In 2019, Wilson threw for under 2,400 yards with only 62% completion and 7.5 yards per attempt. In other words, he was throwing the ball short, but still inaccurately and without much production. In 2019, Wilson also only threw 11 touchdowns with 9 interceptions, leading BYU to an uninspiring 7-6 record. There's a slight injury concern as well. Wilson is a righty, which is fine, except in the last two years, he has had surgery on his right shoulder and a fracture in his right hand. Despite all this, my grievance with this selection is not entirely pertaining to Wilson himself, but the Jets as an organization. They took Sam Darnold third overall in the 2018 draft, and while his NFL tape leaves much to be desired, he wasn't exactly working with the best supporting cast. I think Wilson is better than Darnold, but if the Jets keep drafting young quarterbacks without improving the rest of their team, they're going to keep getting the same results. Quarterbacks, even great quarterbacks, cannot always overcome institutional deficiencies. In 2020, Deshaun Watson had a historic season, and his team still only won four games. 
PFF, an advanced analytics sports data company, reported that Wilson had the best performance of any quarterback in over a decade. ESPN reported that Wilson is one of only four quarterbacks in NFL history to complete 70% of his passes at 8.5 yards per attempt over a full season. Those quarterbacks are Joe Montana, Steve Young, and Drew Brees, who each did it once, and in those years, each won the MVP in Super Bowl. But again, the Texans went 4-12. Even if Wilson is good, even if he is great, even if he is historic, that might not be enough. As Giselle once said about Brady, he can't throw and catch the ball. Unfortunately for Jets fans, neither can Wilson, nor play slot corner, defensive end, or interior offensive lineman. Though it would be a classic Jetsy thing to do, taking Wilson and trying to transition him to off-the-ball linebacker. If that happens, I'm so here for it. Needless to say, I'm skeptical how this pick is going to turn out. But hey, Wilson did look really good at his pro day, throwing rehearsed passes in shorts with no defenders. The third overall pick is owned by the San Francisco 49ers. And at three, I have San Francisco taking center Landon Dickerson out of... I'm just kidding. This is yet another pick that's a lock for a quarterback. After the 49ers traded three first-round draft picks to move into the number three spot, and all but confirmed it's for a new quarterback. There's some debate about which quarterback should be the one to come off the board, but there shouldn't be. It's Justin Fields. Comparing Fields to Wilson is a no contest. Looking at their respective collegiate careers, Fields is a more accurate passer with a higher completion percentage, while throwing more yards per attempt and a higher adjusted yards per attempt percentage. He threw more touchdowns, fewer interceptions, had a higher touchdown to interception ratio, had a significantly higher passer rating, rushed for almost double the yards, rushed for more touchdowns, had more rushing yards per attempt, and oh, by the way, did all of this in one fewer seasons than Wilson and against much better competition. Fields is the most athletic quarterback in the class, running a 4.44 40-yard dash, while Wilson, Lawrence, and Lance all elected not to run the 40 at all. Fields also has the work ethic, leadership, and toughness you want in a quarterback. He outdueled Trevor Lawrence in the college football playoffs this season, despite his rib being cracked in the second quarter. Fields went 22 of 28 for 385 yards, 6 touchdowns, and 1 interception in a 49-28 Sugar Bowl victory over Lawrence's Clemson Tigers. With a goddamn broken rib. There's a solid case that Fields should be the number one overall. Him and Lawrence are 1A and 1B on my big board. Pound for pound, Fields is better. Having a higher completion percentage and passer rating. But I think Lawrence gets the edge due to sample size. Lawrence has almost double the passing attempts giving more credence to his numbers. But if Fields is able to sustain his production over the last two seasons, he's the best quarterback in the draft. The number four pick belongs to the Atlanta Falcons. And this is where the draft gets really interesting. I have no idea what the Falcons are going to do here. They could go in a variety of different directions. Matty Ice is getting old and more importantly looking old, but they are heavily invested in him for the next few seasons. Moving on, or even benching him, would be financially disastrous. Not utilizing a player that accounts for cap hits of $27 million, $47 million, and $43 million over the next three years would be cripplingly inefficient. The Falcons can't exactly get themselves out of this bind either. 
incurring a 70 million dead cap hit in 2021, 40 million in 2022, and 15 million in 2023. So even if they cut ties with Ryan three years from now, they would be forfeiting more money than what Devontae Adams is currently getting paid per year. A quarterback taken here would be guaranteed to yield little to no value for two years minimum. Green Bay traded up to get a long-term project quarterback last year. That pick was not received well, to say the least. Running back is also a need, but that's a day two problem. The selection for the Atlanta Falcons at number four is Kyle Pitts, tight end out of Florida. I'm not sure how I feel about Kyle Pitts. Pitts is going to be a top 10 pick. His tape is amazing. He's a dynamic pass catcher, the far and away most highly touted tight end prospect in the draft. But a tight end in the top 10 is difficult to justify. Similarly to running back, you can get good tight ends later in the draft. Do I think it's possible a guy taken later in the draft will be better? Yes. In fact, I think it's probable. Current tight ends taken in the first round include Hayden Hurst, OJ Howard, Evan Ingram, David Njoku, Eric Ebron, Tyler Eifert, Jermaine Gresham, and Brandon Pettigrew. Tight ends taken in the third round or later, Rob Gronkowski, George Kittle, Travis Kelsey, Mark Andrews, Darren Waller. Also looking a little further back, Antonio Gates, Shannon Sharp, and Jason Witten. All of the best tight ends in today's game, and most of those in the Hall of Fame, were not high draft picks. Now, does this mean that Pitts will be bad? Or that every later round tight end will be good? No, of course not. It just means there's typically value later in the draft. I like Pitts in the receiving game, but the knock on his skill set is consistent run blocking. He's a pass catching specialist. I think his pro comp is Evan Ingram. They have similar physical profiles, similar athletic profiles, with Ingram actually having significantly more receptions and yards in both college career and final collegiate seasons. Following that narrative, I think it's possible for Pitts to also average 50 catches, 600 yards, and two touchdowns as Ingram has in his first four years in the league. I'm just not sure that justifies a top 10 pick. The positives of taking Pitts here? The Falcons are undecided on Hayden Hurst's fifth-year option. Adding Pitts would give them flexibility here, and Julio won't be around forever with injury already becoming a concern. Pitts' ability to play in the slot with Ridley out wide, retains their 1-2 punch, should Julio miss time or call it quits. Trading back is the only right move here. Staying put, there are only three options, none of which are particularly appealing. Quarterback, Kyle Pitts, or Penny Sewell. They can't take a quarterback, it's too early to take a tight end, and too early to take a guard. With Jack Matthews and Caleb McGarry, Sewell would be pushed to the interior offensive line. The difference between an elite guard and average guard is not worth the fourth overall pick. Furthermore, none of these players fill any of the positions of need for the Falcons, cornerback, safety, or edge. What they should do is capitalize on the bullish quarterback market and move back into the middle of the first round in the draft to target an actual position of need at a place where they could get value for that player, while also picking up additional draft picks along the way. But in this mock draft, they take Kyle Pitts out of Florida to solidify their tight end position and provide a dynamic receiver for Matt Ryan. With Kyle Pitts going number four, the Cincinnati Bengals have an interesting dilemma at number five. If Sewell is still on the board as he is here, this is a very interesting pick. If he isn't, 
This is very easy. It's Jamar Chase. If Atlanta goes Pitts or quarterback, there's a serious debate over Sewell and Jamar Chase. Since he recently signed tackle Riley Reef in the offseason and have 2019 first-round pick Jonah Williams, so I think they should lean wide receiver. And of course, it has to be Chase. On the other hand, protecting Joe Burrow has to be the priority. Minimizing future hits on their franchise quarterback is vital to long-term success. The pick could also signify the balance of power in the organization. Whether or not he deserves this label remains to be seen, but Joe Burrow is the franchise, or at least he has to be regarded as the franchise. Of course he wants to reunite with his boy, Jamar Chase, but the question is, does Joe Burrow have the juice to make that move happen? If Chase had a third round grade, probably not. But if it's between him and someone else, does the franchise get Burrow's guy in an effort to keep him in Cincinnati long term? The Texans ruined their relationship with star quarterback Deshaun Watson simply to make a point of his lack of voice in player-coach personnel and to set the tone about who makes the decisions. The Bengals could do that by taking Sewell, but I believe the long-term consequences are too large to justify the move. Power is changing in the NFL, and the Bengals would be wise to consider that. Ultimately, the organization does what organizations do, what they want. Selecting Penny Sewell, tackle out of Oregon. Sewell was the first true freshman to start the season for Oregon in over 20 years. In his sophomore season, he won the Outland Trophy, given to the nation's best lineman. He was the first sophomore ever to win the award. A unanimous All-American who opted out of 2020. He's only 20 years old, a leader, rare athlete, excellent pass blocker, and run blocker. Penny Sewell is going to the Cincinnati Bengals at number 5. At number 6, the Miami Dolphins take Jamar Chase, wide receiver, LSU. Miami moved back up to the number 6 to be in a position to take either Jamar Chase or Kyle Pitts. If Pitts Chase go 4-5 respectively, it's between Sewell and insert Alabama wide receiver. If the Falcons go quarterback and the Bengals take Sewell and or Pitts, the Dolphins very happily walk away with Jamar Chase. Chase is my clear-cut number one wideout with all pro potential. Chase had an illustrious career at LSU, marked by historic 2019 before opting out of 2020. His ability to catch the ball is second to none in this class, with great balance and body control. Elite speed and crafty moves to create separation at the top of route stems or when the ball is in the air, make him a viable deep threat, supported by yards per catch north of 20. Justin Jefferson was a standout in a loaded wide receiver class last year. Him and Chase shared the field at LSU in 2019, and Chase was the better of the two. That says something. Terrific prospect with tremendous traits and incredible upside. At number 7, the Detroit Lions select Jalen Waddell, wide receiver, Alabama. The Lions are in trouble right now. They could really use a playmaker on offense after letting both Kenny Galladay and Marvin Jones walk in free agency. But they also have a terrible defense. Last year, the Lions ranked last in the NFL in overall team defense, coverage, and tackling. Yikes. They also allowed 40 points or more in five games last year and don't have a particularly good offensive line or quarterback. Double yikes. With so many needs, trading back makes the most sense. Look for a potential trade with the Washington football team, New England Patriots, or Bears here. 
with Trey Lance and Mac Jones still on the board. If any of the QB needy teams love one of the guys, the Lions should be more than happy to move back and acquire draft capital while clearly at the beginning stages of a rebuild. If they stay put, taking the best player available is the move, and that player is Jalen Waddell. The Lions go wide receiver here, but it's not the one that people expect. Waddle is a playmaker if there ever was one. He may be the fastest player in the draft and the best route runner, with some incredible contested catch highlights. Worth a Google, by the way. Waddle is the best deep threat in a loaded class, while also playing most of 2019 in the slot for Alabama. Game-changing speed, immense run after the catch ability, high points of football, dazzling returner, his pro comp, Tyree Kill, without the off-the-field concerns and more refined route running. The big question with Waddle is health. He was on fire to begin the 2020 season, outshining his teammate Devontae Smith, who eventually won the Heisman, before his season was cut short due to a fractured ankle. Waddle was thought to be out for the season, but came back to play in the national championship game, helping Alabama secure the title. He's got the intangibles and the unteachables. This is not the kind of injury that can become a lingering problem, so he should be good to go to start the 2021 season. If he can remain healthy, there is a real wide receiver one potential. Number eight, the Carolina Panthers are on the clock. Before trading for Sam Darnold, this pick is clearly quarterback. Now things are a little murkier. They could still go quarterback here, playing the numbers game, trying to find a franchise guy, but they're accepting a loss in that scenario either accepting the assets traded for Darnold were a waste or the eighth pick here. For that reason, I think they go in a different direction. A middle-of-the-pack offensive line could be the position group, but with 2020 second-round pick Greg Little performing well, franchise-tagging tackle Taylor Morton, bringing in guard Pat Elfline, and offensive tackle Cameron Irving, that is not the biggest need. Wide receiver is an option, with a Heisman winner still available, but with Robbie Anderson, DJ Moore, David Moore, they don't need more help. Sorry, I had to do it. The pick is in, and Patrick Sertain II out of Alabama is going to the North or South, who really knows, Carolina Panthers. Carolina ranked 25th in opposing passer rating when the passer was pressured. Adding Sertain II shores up the secondary and complements 2020 first-round pick Derek Brown. Sertain II has a side, speeds, and instincts to be a CB1 at the next level. Best in a zone coverage scheme, he struggled a little bit in press man, but given his strength and length, he should be able to correct that. The NFC South is loaded with top-tier wide receivers. Carolina has routinely struggled to defend. They seek an answer to those struggles with the number eight pick, Patrick Sertain II out of Alabama. At number nine, the Denver Broncos select Trey Lance, quarterback, North Dakota State. Trey Lance becomes a fourth quarterback off the board. Let's be clear. This is not what I think the Broncos should do, but what I think they will do. I'm a firm believer in not cycling through first-round quarterbacks, but rather building your team. This simultaneously gives you a clearer picture of your current quarterback and or sets up your next quarterback for the most success. Because if they continue to struggle in the wake of a better supporting cast, then it may be time to move on. Or if their play improves, it indicates the problem might not have been them in the first place. If the former is true and it becomes clear a change is necessary, your next quarterback will inherit a better team and theoretically find more success with better players around him. 
taking quarterback after quarterback doesn't solve the problem. I think adding a stud linebacker or improving their offensive line would be the smartest play. But in the end, Lance's upside and Elway's quarterback expectations will result in Denver ending the Drew Locke project permanently. Trey Lance is a great athlete and produces a lot of wow throws. With Big Ten offers to play linebacker and safety, Lance bet on himself and rightfully remained steadfast in his position as quarterback. Watching Lance, he reminds me a little of Deshaun Watson. The accuracy, the arm strength, limited turnovers, athleticism, difficulty of defenders trying to tackle and sack him, throws on the run. Links to Watson aren't just on the field either. Trey Lance's quarterback coach is Quincy Avery, Deshaun Watson's quarterback coach. Lance has the best arm in the draft. The ball jumps off his hand with a 40-yard post-corner route on a rope very much in his locker. Turnovers and losses are a very infrequent occurrence with Lance. In 2019, he threw 28 touchdowns and zero interceptions, and he has never lost a game in his collegiate career. Unfortunately, throwing the ball was also an infrequent occurrence. With only 318 career passing attempts, this number is pretty worrying. The average collegiate passing attempts for quarterbacks in the past 10 Super Bowls is over 1,300. Lance is nowhere near that. COVID obviously plays a role, effectively costing Lance a season. But even if he plays, that only gets him to around 600. In his one full season with North Dakota State, they only ran 18 passing attempts per game. The offensive system, however, at North Dakota State is a pro-style offense, which should help Lance at the next level, having experience working under center and out of play action. Lance can sometimes struggle opening his hips, creating inaccuracy when throwing towards the right hash. Technical work in setting his feet a little quicker could rectify this issue, but that's a minor thing to clean up. Working through progressions may also present a problem at the next level. In college, Lance had a tendency to lock onto his primary target, and when that wasn't there, taking off with his legs. At the next level, he will need to work through two or three or sometimes four progressions. Defenders will read his eyes and make a play on the ball. Looking off safeties is a skill that he will need to hone. Some may point out the 17 games started, but that's the same as Mac Jones. My bigger concern is a level of competition. The NFL speed is just different. Less time to throw, smaller windows, better defenders, and the transition will be even more drastic for Lance. These concerns don't mean he isn't capable of being a star quarterback, as these were the same concerns made about Josh Allen. His development is a testament to Lance's potential. If Lance can figure things out, that offense with the playmakers that they took last year could potentially match their division rivals, the Chiefs. Dallas is on the clock with a 10th pick. The offensive side of the ball is not the issue for the Cowboys. Quarterback, running back, wide receiver, offensive tackle are all locked down. The interior offensive line could be improved later in the draft. An edge rusher opposite Lawrence is also an option, but Randy Gregory should be a sufficient one-year stopgap. D-tackle's a concern as well, but in a class without a premier guy and lots of depth, it wouldn't make sense to reach at 10. The best player available on the board is a linebacker, but Jalen Smith, Leighton Vander and Kanu Neal, who was reportedly signed with the intention of playing covered linebacker, is a solid enough group. So with the 10th pick, the Dallas Cowboys take J.C. Horn, cornerback, South Carolina. Horn is a physical man-to-man corner. He aggressively goes after the ball and plays tight coverage. Elite 4-3 speed will prevent him from getting beat over the top, 
and ability to quickly flip his hips should be useful guarding quicker receivers. Plays go routes and slants equally well and isn't afraid to tackle. However, he can sometimes get a bit overzealous, going for the hit stick rather than the wrap up, thus missing some open field tackles that you would expect him to make. Hasn't shown NFL efficacy in reading zone coverage and will, at least initially, be schematically limited to man coverage. Penalties may also pose an issue. College is more lenient than the NFL, and he was still heavily flagged. Getting more confident in his ability and technique should hopefully reel him in a little bit. New defensive coordinator Dan Quinn runs a hybrid 4-3 cover 2 man system. Horn's aggressive play style, press coverage ability, and man-to-man preference should fit nicely into the Cowboys' defensive scheme. Of all the corners in the class, there's a case to be made that Horn has the highest upside with shades, shades of Jalen Ramsey. New York Giants are up next, and the Giants don't have an obvious need. A young O-line, decent linebackers, two good corners, locking down Leonard Williams and signing Kenny G were good offseason moves, as I think their biggest needs going into free agency were edge rusher, if Williams left, and a wide receiver one. I think the pick could be best available between Devontae Smith, Micah Parsons, and Rashawn Slater. Odenabo is not a bad player. There's some upside there, but bringing him in on a one-year, low-money contract indicates that they want to upgrade the position, but don't necessarily view him, at least presently, as the answer. Reggie Ragland is also a solid linebacker and should take the mic role in the middle of the defense next to Blake Martinez. The loss of Kevin Zettler hurts on the interior offensive line, which could indicate where the Giants go here. So with the 11th pick, the New York football Giants take Elijah Vera Tucker, offensive line, USC. Elijah played tackle and guard in college with the highest pass blocking grade in the class. A versatile offensive lineman with great athleticism and a great kick slide. He pulls well in run blocking and has good body positioning. This isn't the sexiest pick, but it will help protect Daniel Jones and open up holes for Saquon Barkley. Doubling down on wide receiver here is interesting too. So is reinforcing the defense with Micah Parsons, but continuing to build the offensive line through the draft will best serve the G-men. There's an argument for taking Slater or Derisaw, both of whom I rate higher than Elijah, and transitioning them to guard, but I think his experience at the position and proficiency pass blocking is enough to justify the selection. With the 12th pick, the Philadelphia Eagles select Devontae Smith, wide receiver, Alabama. Some decisions in life are easy. This is one of them. Receiver is the biggest need for the Eagles, and the Heisman winning wideout falls to them at number 12. Don't overthink this one. It's Devontae Smith. The Slim Reaper, Devontae Smith, stands at 6 feet, 170 pounds. Not the prototypical NFL wide receiver one, but his production speaks for itself. 117 receptions, 1,800 yards, and 23 touchdowns. He displays outstanding instincts and situational awareness. Interprets space well, finding and creating the opening time and again. You would think press coverage would trouble a guy his size? You would think. His quickness and immaculate footwork make it impossible for defenders to even get their hands on him. He shows excellent body control and hand-eye coordination on contested catches, makes sideline catches, and picks up yards after the catch. Devontae Smith is patient to get open 
and fast enough to break away. This is a pick that Eagles fans will be excited about, and a pick that reunites their new starting quarterback, Jalen Hurts, with his former Alabama teammate and Heisman winner, Devontae Smith. At number 13, the Los Angeles Chargers select Rashawn Slater, tackle Northwestern. Justin Herbert was elite on throwing under pressure and throwing on the run last year, but that doesn't mean they want him to be in those situations. Protecting Herbert was a major issue last year and has to be addressed here. The Chargers get good value with Rashawn Slater out of Northwestern. Slater is a great pass blocker with experience at right tackle and left tackle. He went one-on-one against Chase Young in 2019 and got the better of the matchup. Only concern is arm length, which could see Slater move to the inside of the offensive line. I'm not convinced there's a ton of upside here, but a plug-and-play tackle who should improve Herbert's blindside from day one. At 14, the Minnesota Vikings also go tackle with the addition of Christian Derisaw, tackle, Virginia Tech. Minnesota did not have a great offensive line going into the offseason and then lost tackle Riley Reef. Offensive line is a sensible choice and there's a great fit on the board. Harrison Smith could use a partner at safety as well, but again, there will be value in waiting until day two or early day three to find Anthony Smith's replacement. But the Vikings fill their biggest need, and in a pretty big way. Christian Derisop might be the best offensive lineman in the draft. At 6'5", 315, with strong hands and soft feet, he plays with balance and a wide base and proper pad level. Devastating at the second level, ability to pick up blocks in motion, comes off the edge with violent intentions. Great run blocking tackle who pass blocks well enough to play tackle on the left side. PFF's top rated 2020 tackle in the Power 5 conferences and PFF's best run blocking grade on zone runs among NFL caliber tackles since 2014. Remember that guy, Dalvin Cook? Darisol has all the tools and demonstrates a clear ability to execute the proper technique necessary to be a dominant tackle. Neither Sewell or Slater played in 2020 but Darisaw only helped his draft stock by returning, and in time, could be seen as the best tackle out of this very deep class. The New England Patriots are on the clock at 15. Is this partially me speaking this scenario into existence? Yeah, maybe, but here, the Patriots have the choice of the top two linebackers in the class. Two players in the top five of my big board. Micah Parsons, and Jeremiah Owusu-Karamoa. Knowing Bill, this pick is probably some safety from Stanford who plays rugby, or an Alabama defensive back I've never even heard of. Could be the occasional lineman projected to go three rounds from now, but hey, I'm being hopeful here, and again, trying to visualize this into reality. Many will argue the Patriots have to draft a quarterback here, and luckily, Mac Jones has fallen all the way to them at 15, Some would say that another year of Cam under center is another year wasted. You all know how I feel about Cam. I'm not sold on him, but I haven't given up yet either. Getting a solid position player helps us more in the short term, as a rookie quarterback has never taken their team to the Super Bowl in NFL history. And in the long term, as a year from now, I would prefer, say, a stud linebacker and Jimmy Garoppolo than Mac Jones, whose pro comp is Jimmy Garoppolo. If you want the Patriots to be as competitive as possible next season, you should not want them to take a quarterback. 
If you want them to trade or sign a guy like Jimmy next year, you should also not want them to take a quarterback and effectively waste this pick. So let's shift focus to the decision at hand, these two linebackers. Deciding between these two difference makers is an impossible task. Both are outstanding, but fundamentally different stylistically. Parsons is a true outside linebacker with a higher upside rushing the passer, while Owusu Karamoa is a linebacker, dime corner, hybrid, who can also play safety. Owusu Karamoa is the hardest hitter in the draft class. The proper word to describe him? Sudden. He just appears, and the tackle happens instantaneously. Fearless attitude, Notre Dame leader, culture setter, winner of the 2020 Buckus Award for the nation's best linebacker, a unanimous All-American who has unique versatility. If he were listed as a corner, he would be the number one corner in the draft. Belichick would be like a kid on Christmas Eve, too excited to sleep, just thinking of ways to utilize the acclaimed backer. The schemes, the packages, one week middle linebacker, the next slot corner, then safety, then edge rusher. Jeremiah Owusu-Karamoa has an almost identical physical profile of Darius Leonard, the all-pro rusher, and with a skill set somewhere in between Brian Erlacher and Troy Palamalu. Yeah. Jock's recent comments on perfecting his tackling and angles are, and I quote, A painter can paint a big picture, but it's not going to become a masterpiece until he focuses on the small details. This guy is a goddamn artist. And on what he offers a team's needs and cultures, he responded, I want to be able to mold myself and cultivate myself to match what that team's looking for. With anything that's positive, I want to be able to adapt and be reliable to others and give the team what the team ultimately needs. If that doesn't sound like the Patriot way, then I don't know what is. Jock is special, but still my number two linebacker in the class. It is possible Parsons is gone by now, in which case this pick is easily the hard-hitting Notre Dame alum. But with both available here, I think the Patriots go Parsons. With the 15th pick, the Patriots get the steal of the draft. An absolute stud. The guy I want the Patriots to get so badly, Micah Parsons out of Penn State. PFF stated that Parsons is the best linebacker they have ever graded, continuing that he is the best run defender, blitzer, and tackler at the position in the class, and the best overall pass rusher in the class. He is 6'3", 250, inside-outside roving linebacker who runs a 4'3", His athleticism is off the charts. Sure tackler, causes turnovers, gets to the passer, aggressive, intelligent. Parsons was a five-star running back prospect coming out of high school. Change of direction, agility, and instincts are all major pros. The only minor weakness is he can sometimes overextend himself in zone coverage, shifting too much to one side of the zone as opposed to the other. But this guy is just different. He's got all pro written all over him. Bill finds his GM form once again by selecting a game-changing, lightning-fast linebacker. Think a bigger, stronger, faster Ryan Shazier. His pro comp? Hall of Famer Jack Ham. And at 16, we head to the Cardinals, who had another fantastic offseason. Adding three-time Defensive Player of the Year J.J. Watt to form a formidable pass-rushing duo with Chandler Jones. Swapping Pat Pete for Malcolm Butler on a team-friendly deal, bringing in A.J. Green 
acquiring three-time Pro Bowl center Rodney Hudson from the Raiders for cents on the dollar, and running back James Conner on a one-year, $1.25 million deal. Very, very well done. Subsequently, there are not many holes to fill in the draft. With a 16th pick, the Arizona Cardinals take a shot on quarterback Caleb Farley out of Virginia Tech. Farley has excellent size, speed, and ball skills. Exhibiting a comfort in zone and man coverage, versatility is a plus. Fluid hips and gets his head around to high point the ball. He could play a little bit stronger, but doesn't get beat deep. Posting a PFF coverage rating of 90.5 and allowing a meager 26.8 passer rating to opposing quarterbacks. Caleb has legit CB1 potential. However, the concern is health. Back surgery in March prohibited him from participating in pro day workouts, which was particularly important considering he opted out of 2020. All indications suggest he will be good to go to start the season, but the slight health risk is keeping him from being higher on this list. At 17, the Las Vegas Raiders get one of my guys, Jeremiah Owusu-Karamoa. The Raiders need a playmaking linebacker and a slot corner, and there's a perfect fit available. Jock comes off the board at 17 and is heading to Las Vegas. Pencil Owusu-Karamoa into the 2041 Hall of Fame class. I'm just kidding. Put it in ink. This guy is special. Hopefully, the Raiders don't waste him, but we shall see. Offensive line has to be a consideration here as well, but with Christian Darrisaw and Elijah Vera Tucker off the board, there isn't much value. Maybe Tevin Jenkins or Samuel Kosmi, who could both fill that right tackle role. I actually love Kosmi, but Jock is just too perfect of a fit for both the Raiders' style and needs. Tackle, guard, and wide receiver all have to be addressed later in the draft, but all three positions are exceptionally deep this year. The Dolphins are back on the clock at 18. And they could go a variety of different directions here, improving their offensive line, adding a playmaker for Tua, ramming up their defense. The interior of the line would be the focus, but with the top guard already off the board, I don't think there's great value at 18. Doubling down on offensive weapons in the first round is an attractive hypothetical. The top guys on the board are Rashad Bateman and Terrence Marshall Jr. With Kadarius Tooney and Elijah Moore being the best fit as the Dolphins would be looking for a slot guy after signing Will Fuller in free agency. But I think Brian Flores' roots in defense prevail, electing to solidify their defense with their second pick. Aziz Ojolari out of Georgia is the pick. Ed Rusher and linebacker are the two biggest needs for the Dolphins, and they kill two birds with one stone in Ojolari, who is an edge-backer hybrid. If they decide to prioritize solely pass rush or solely linebacker, there are better options available, but the versatility of Aziz should appeal to Flores. Crown jewel of the draft, king of the edge, heir to the sack title. These turns of phrase are slightly more literal with Aziz Ojolari, whose grandfather was a Nigerian prince and world-renowned artist. On the field, he is just as special, showcasing elite pass rush skills and the ability to be a complete edge defender. Though slightly light for the position, he has long arms and great body control with effective pass rush moves, displays consistent pursuit and played recognition. A guy who can fill multiple roles on your defense, and particularly the two roles that the Dolphins are looking to strengthen. With the 19th pick, the Washington football team selects Mac Jones, quarterback, Alabama. The Washington football team would be elated to see Jones fall this far and would promptly end it. 
Jones led college football in passing yards, passing efficiency, and completion percentage, while finishing second in touchdown passes. Of the five QBs that would be taken in the first round, Jones is the most accurate, efficient, and productive in 2020. He also led his team to a national championship. To put Matt Jones's 2020 season in perspective, he had a higher overall quarterback rating than Joe Burrow did in 2019, 203 to 202. Both had identical team success playing in the same conference. Burrow was a can't-miss unanimous number one overall pick due to his breakout year. Jones performed at worst equally and is a year younger than Burrow was coming out. Getting Jones at 19 would make Ron Rivera's year. The Washington football team stops the slide of Alabama star quarterback Mac Jones by taking him with the 19th pick. Up next are the Chicago Bears. The Bears needed a really good free agency, and they did not get one. After whiffing completely on the quarterback carousel, releasing their best defensive player, Kyle Fuller, and failing to lock up their offensive cornerstone, Allen Robinson, it was a bit of a hot mess in the Windy City. I would say the Bears should trade up to go get a quarterback, but they have so many holes elsewhere, it doesn't make sense. The Bears are rebuilding, or just building. Corner is a major concern. Picking up one here would be a smart move. Greg Newsom II or Asante Samuel Jr. are still on the board, with decent value. But the Bears go in a different direction. Without a quarterback, or a plan to get one this year, the Bears should build for the future and lean into their run game that showed promise down the stretch. So with the 20th pick, the Chicago Bears select Tevin Jenkins, tackle out of Oklahoma State. Tevin Jenkins is a big, strong, mean mother effer. He offers versatility, having played right tackle, left tackle, and guard in college. He projects as a run-blocking right tackle. 6'6", with strong hands, Jenkins moves with bad intentions and goes right to the whistle. 2021 will be a decisive year for running back David Montgomery. The Bears go back to their roots with this pick, running the football and playing tough defense, or at least trying to. With the 21st pick, the Indianapolis Colts like Jason Owa, defensive end, Penn State. Nobody had a better pro day than Jason Owa, recording the best 40 time, 4.39, and the best broad jump, 11-2, of any defensive end ever. In the history of recording combines and pro days, he is the most explosive edge rusher in the history of the NFL. Owa also ranks in the 90th percentile in run defense. Stout against the run, explosive rushing the passer, there's a lot to like here. Lack of production though is a concern, not recording a single sack this year, but that won't stop a team from betting on the upside. On defense, the Colts ranked 25th in the NFL in pass rush grade, then lost their two most productive defensive ends, Justin Houston and Danico Audrey. Pairing Darius Leonard with Jason Owa, with DeForest Buckner inside is terrifying. I don't care who you are, no quarterback or running back for that matter, is outrunning that group. With the 22nd pick, the Tennessee Titans go wide receiver with Rashad Bateman out of Minnesota. Let's be real, A.J. Brown needs some help. Following the departures of Corey Davis and John New Smith, a receiver to take the pressure off Brown is a necessity. Six foot 190 with a sub 4440. Bateman is a dominant receiver, short catcher, and legit deep threat. He displays great hand-eye coordination and smooth, fluid routes. The kind of guy that can move the chains. 
creates separation, but does not need separation to make the catch. Quick breaking in and out of routes, comes back to the quarterback when necessary, and doesn't take plays off. Not a whole lot of negatives in his game, though he could probably be a little bit better of a blocker for his size. Tennessee could opt for a slot receiver with Elijah Moore, but Bateman is the most complete receiver on the board and could provide another Batman as opposed to just a Robin to AJ. The New York JETS 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 are on the clock at 23, and the pick is Greg Newsom, the second cornerback, Northwestern. Again, this is a clear position of need. Despite producing the worst coverage grade in the NFL for outside corners, they did not bring any reinforcements in during free agency. That means building through the draft. Robert Sala makes his first defensive draft selection with Greg Newsom II, who is the best corner available, and particularly the best perimeter corner. Great ball skills, quick hips, and elite speed prime him for success on the outside. He will need to pick and choose the times he aggressively seeks the interception, as there's a tendency to play the ball instead of the receiver, which could lead to yards after the catch if he doesn't get there first. Durability is also a mild concern, having never played a full season, but if he can stay on the field, he should be a good starter on the outside. With the 24th overall selection, the Pittsburgh Steelers select Samuel Cosme, tackle, Texas. Villanueva coming back changes this, but for now he's a free agent and there's a massive hole at right tackle. Samuel Cosme is big enough to fill that role, standing at 6'7", 315 pounds with elite athleticism. Cosme lit up his pro day, running a 4'8", 440, and putting up 36 reps of 225 pounds. Gliding to the second level with ease, he just moves people, eliminating linebackers from the play. Body positioning is key to his game, shielding off running lanes and using his frame to win alignments. Minor technical flaws in feet movement, hip placement, and standing tall are overcompensated by being more athletic than his opposition. Coaching should solve these, but it's worth noting, versatile and durable tackle with experience on the right and left side. Next up is the Jacksonville Jaguars at number 25 for their second selection. There are multiple ways the Jaguars could go with this pick. Safety is a concern, even after overpaying Rashawn Jenkins. And with the top safety Morig on the board, that is a legitimate possibility. Adding a pass catcher in the way of a receiver or tight end could help Lawrence's transition to the league. But Meyer spoke highly of both DJ Chark and LaVisca Chenault, and tight end would be a reach here. Urban Meyer loves his defensive ends. Last month vowing to solidify the position group with the goal of having a top 5 defensive line in the entire league. Edge is already locked up with Josh Allen and Caleb on chase on, but there's not much in the way of pass rush on the interior defensive line. Roy Robertson-Harris and Malcolm Brown are solid additions, but they're not going to get the Jaguars' defensive line where Urban Meyer wants it. Christian Barrymore could. And so with the 25th overall selection, the Jacksonville Jaguars select Christian Barmore, defensive tackle, Alabama. According to PFF, Alabama's Christian Barmore has a top pass rush grade and pass rush win rate in the class over the last two years and both numbers rank in the 99th percentile among NFL-caliber defensive linemen since 2014. He also ranks first in run-stop percentage in the class and in the 98th percentile when compared to NFL-caliber interior defensive linemen. So, he's a beast. 6'4", 3'10", quick and agile. His pro comp, 
former Alabama defensive tackle Marcel Darius. The 26th overall pick belongs to the Cleveland Browns. The Browns are actually really solid, especially with free agent additions Troy Hill, John Johnson III, Malik Jackson, and Jadavion Clowney. The defensive support is continued with a selection of Quiddy Pay. With the 26th pick, the Cleveland Browns are getting a gifted athlete, blue-collar player, who complements an already scary defensive line, while also providing long-term stability as Jackson and Clowney are on one-year contracts. An efficient, though not particularly productive player, Quiddy is similar to former Michigan Wolverine Rashawn Gary, drafted 12th overall by the Packers in 2019. Time will tell if he'll be able to culminate his athletic ability into a productive pro. But he's got all the tools to be successful at the next level, and the opportunity on such a talented line. Baltimore's on the clock. This offseason, losing Matt Judon and Yannick Ngakwe, the two best Ed rushers on the team, was a tough blow for the Ravens. Both guys got overpaid, so letting them walk is sensible in that regard. Nevertheless, there's still a major hole left in their wake particularly for a team that was not elite at rushing the passer to begin with in 2020. Retaining Tyus Bauer and Fernell McPhee helps, but neither guy is a star. These moves at best mitigate the problem, not solve it. Edge is a possibility here, with talented players such as Gregory Rousseau, the best pure pass rusher in the class, a consideration. But if the Ravens are picking based on pure need, then wide receiver is the move. Rashad Bateman would be an ideal fit for them, but with him off the board, there isn't a clear selection. Kadarius Tooney and Elijah Moore are too similar in skill set to Hollywood Brown. So the 6'3 blazer, Terrace Marshall Jr. out of LSU makes the most sense here. However, the Ravens are not picking based on need. Harbaugh goes best player available and selects Trevon Morig, safety, at a TCU. Trevon Morig rated in the 99th percentile in coverage grade, with a 94th percentile mark at free safety, and a 95th percentile grade in the slot, with the best forced incompletion percentage in the country, according to PFF. Lacking a true free safety, Morick is a plug-and-play starter and potential difference maker on the back end. Baltimore also needs a nickel corner, so Morick's ability to play in the slot is a major plus. Not an off-the-charts athlete, there will be some concern of getting beat over the top. Top safeties like Honey Badger, Devin McCourty, Earl Thomas all ran in the low 4-4s compared to Morick's 4-6, but his positioning and ball skills should more than make up. The New Orleans Saints are on the clock at number 28, and the pick is in. It's Levi Onwuzuriki, defensive tackle, Washington. Defensive tackle is not a particularly strong class in this draft, but this pick is a necessity after, le- after letting Sheldon Rankins and Malcolm Brown walk in free agency. Beyond providing a necessary body on the interior, there is some serious upside here. Onwuzuriki plays stronger than he is, keeping his eyes in the backfield without being moved off the line. Leveraging, body control, and quickness support a pass rush upside. He's also got rare stamina for a defensive tackle, a three-down player who did not come off the field much for Washington and offers value against a run and pass. Onwuzuriki rated over the 90th percentile in both pass rush and run defense grade over the last two seasons. He's a stud defensive tackle with the potential to be a force on every play. Highest ceiling of any interior defensive lineman in the draft. Later, the Saints are going to have to address the corner position because I have no idea who's going to play across Lattimore next year. I mean, 
maybe Patrick Robinson or PJ Williams, but I'm not convinced. There's no way Sean Payton feels comfortable going into the season with that scenario. Adding a corner makes sense, either here or in the second round. Adding a wide receiver to complement Michael Thomas would also be a smart move, replacing Emmanuel Sanders and providing a legitimate deep threat. Michael Thomas is elite, elite, but does most of his work from the slot or on slants. So adding a deep threat in either Terrace Marshall Jr. or Elijah Moore in the first or a guy like Diami Brown later on in the draft should be on the Saints' radar. The Green Bay Packers are on the clock at number 29, and I'm actually interested to see what they do here. Wide receiver is very tempting. Lord knows everyone in Wisconsin, including Jeopardy host Aaron Rodgers, wants the Packers to go wide receiver. But this pick here makes too much sense. The Packers select Landon Dickerson center out of Alabama. Packers lose Pro Bowl center Corey Lindsey in free agency, signing a five-year $62.5 million deal with the Chargers, by far their biggest loss of the offseason, and the best center in the draft falls to them at 29. Dickerson leads all draft class centers in both pass blocking and run blocking grades. This is a no-brainer, very clear match between value and need. Not the guy fans will tune in with excitement to watch, but the most likely to help the Packers get past the NFC Championship game. In fact, wide receiver isn't even second on the need list. Or third, defensive back has been a string of draft day disappointments for over half a decade. Asante Samuel Jr.'s ceiling and bullish pro comp of Jair Alexander, the Packers' star corner and arguably the best corner in the game right now. Pairing the two would not be a bad consolation prize were Dickerson taken earlier. Defensive end is also in need. Nearing the bottom of the league in both run defense and pressure rate, the Packers could use some juice in the front seven. Kenny Clark and Zadaria Smith can't do it by themselves. Joseph Asai would be a perfect fit in their base 4-3. Gregory Rousseau is also athletic enough to opposite Smith off the edge. But Green Bay decides to make the right pick and take Landon Dickerson, center out of Alabama. Up next, the Bills at number 30. And I'm having trouble finding a hole in their team. The Bills have a very well-rounded squad with no glaring deficiencies. Solid starters, good depth, the Bills are poised to repeat in the AFC East and are currently the number one contender to the Chiefs. With the 30th pick, the Bills go edge rusher, Gregory Rousseau, electing for the second year in a row to bring a young prospect behind veterans Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison. A.J. Espenza, Ed Oliver, and Gregory Rousseau could be a three-headed monster in a couple years. Protecting Josh Allen is always a good idea, but after bringing back Daryl Williams and John Feliciano, that is not the biggest need, particularly in the first round. Corner is really the only other sensible direction with a number of decent corner and edge prospects on the board. This is kind of a blind dart, but Rousseau is my highest rated prospect at the relative positions and a player with huge upside. Rousseau burst onto the scene recording 15 and a half sacks during his redshirt freshman year in 2019 before opting out of the 2020 season. That mark only trailed Ohio State's Chase Young, and if he were eligible for the draft last year, he would have been the second defensive lineman taken. And quite literally, nothing has changed since. If Rousseau had played this year and produced even half as much as 2019, he would be a guaranteed top 10, maybe top 5 pick. An explosive pass rusher with quickness, industrious feet, and burst. 
struggles against the run, and has a very small sample size. Having only started one season imposes risk, though subsequently increases potential return on investment. If there were a greater sample size with Rousseau, he would be long gone by now. But teams are understandably cautious of a player having played one season effectively, then selling high on his draft stock. Basically betting that Rousseau isn't as good as that one year suggests, and that if he had played a full 2020 season, those numbers would have regressed back to the mean. First round picks are all about risk mitigation, as the asset is so valuable that messing up has severe consequences. But I actually believe the small sample size makes him a perfect target for the Bills. They don't need him to produce right away. Their team is good enough to afford taking on the risk and betting on the upside, because if he is that guy, this pick is the steal of the draft. The reigning AFC champ Kansas City Chiefs are on the board at 31 and select Jamin Davis, linebacker, out of Kentucky. This guy is 6'3", 235, runs in the 4'4s with a 42-inch vertical. The list of players his size who run a sub 4'5 with over a 40-inch vertical are Vernon Davis and Jamin Davis. That's it. Only played in 11 games in college. The sample size principle relative to value also applies here. He's got the physical tools, tremendous upside, but comes with risk. On the field, Davis is a technical tackler, outstanding in run defense, with sure open field wrap-up. He does not offer much in the way of getting to the quarterback, as he's a prototypical 3-4 middle linebacker. There's some wasted movement in his game made up by his athletic ability, but that's an easily coachable weakness. Heady player, displays quick play diagnosis, and does not hesitate. Floats easily in coverage, changing directions swiftly and timely. Sacks are an important yet overrated statistic. And many players are transitioning toward that specialty because, well, that's where the money is. Pass rushers get paid more. But tackling, coverage, and block shedding are equally, if not more important. Jamin Davis won't be doing many sack dances, but he will be doing everything else for your defense. Great pick by Kansas City. Rounding out the first round, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers select Jalen Phillips, defensive end, Miami. This all comes down to the medical. Without medical concerns, Phillips is probably a top 15 pick though some teams may flag him due to a 2018 retirement from football prompted by numerous concussions. Personally, I don't love him. His five-star pedigree, above-average athleticism, and one breakout year at Miami will probably get him drafted higher than he should, but I think this pick is loaded with risk. My take could look really bad in a couple years if he's able to pull it all together and simultaneously not sustain a concussion playing an extremely brutal sport. I also think it's possible a team buys the fact that last season's breakout vindicates his hype and takes him a little bit earlier. I just don't buy it. Regardless, he is still at worst a day two pick and very solid NFL starter, just not quite the player as advertised. That concludes the first round and coverage of our mock draft. Stay tuned for potentially more draft content, including day two gems, Prospects I like, position rankings, hot takes, maybe even an alternating 
quick-fire mock draft with Noah and I. Anyways, thanks for listening. If you like this episode, comment below or let us know at thegamepointspodcast at gmail.com. Bye for now.